This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri land. Last Friday, Alexei Navalny, the Russian anti-corruption campaigner and a longtime fierce critic of Vladimir Putin, died in prison. In this episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, host Hannah Moore explores how Navalny became Russia's strongest opposition figure and what his death means for the resistance movement that he led. Here's Hannah. It had become almost inevitable that Alexei Navalny would die in prison. By the age of 47, he'd already survived being physically attacked many times. He'd been almost blinded and poisoned with a Soviet-era nerve agent. From the brink of death, he'd come back and continued to fight to expose the corruption at the top of Russia's government. I think that Alexei Navalny was the most important opposition figure in certainly Vladimir Putin's Russia and maybe in post-Soviet Russia in general. He escaped Russia, but it wasn't long before he returned, knowing he'd be sent to prison. Most of us were weak and selfish, and we chose to go into exile. But that's why Navalny was a real leader was the one who was capable to become the president of the country, who kept saying, I'm not afraid, and please, you shouldn't be afraid either. In jail, his sentences were increased by so many years that he'd never have got out in Putin's lifetime. It was always Navalny versus Putin. On Friday, he died suddenly. We don't know how. But across Russia, his many supporters have gone out into the streets to mourn, knowing that like their hero, they'd risk arrest. In an ever more repressive regime, can they keep his crusade against corruption alive? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, Navalny and the battle for a free Russia. 
There's a lot of people here who, like us, are against corruption, that, like us, want change and a better life. How did he actually get into politics? His grandparents came from Ukraine, actually, near Chernobyl, where there was a massive nuclear accident in 1986. And that was one incident that Navalny said had politicized him somewhat as a younger person because he had blamed the government, like many others, for failing to evacuate local farmers and other people in the area quickly enough and exposing them to a lot of danger. All this uh, nuclear and radioactive dust was on these fields and they were forced to go uh, to, uh, to plant potatoes just to prevent rumors, just to explain population that everything is fine, everything is okay, go and work to the fields. And with the first appearance of Putin on the screen, uh, I just felt it. I have this, the same feeling, like uh, I'm watching TV and I'm watching political leader, and he's looking in my eyes and lying to me. He came from a fairly middle-class background and eventually went into training as a lawyer but he always had a sense of being a bit of an organizer. So going back to the early 2000s, he had already joined what is often called a liberal party in Russia, Yablka. But at the same time, Navalny's early political views were fairly nationalist. He was clearly pushing an anti-migrant policy. By 2008 or 2009, there was one other platform that he was developing. It was a live journal blog. And on it, he was detailing anti-corruption not really investigations, but more like questions that would eventually grow into the kind of platform and the movement that he created. Did his belief in Russian nationalism continue as he was becoming more prominent? This is a question that followed him for a long time. Navalny's politics changed over time. He did move away from the kind of nationalist beliefs that I think characterized him in the mid-2000s. But at the same time, he never really renounced them maybe as forcefully as many people wanted him to. Right, OK. So a complicated figure, it's fair to say, but he was rising to prominence by highlighting corruption at the very top of the government. How did the Russian authorities start to hit back at him? There's a moment in the country when he all of a sudden rises to prominence, and that is the Bolotnai protests in 2011. This was a massive protest movement in Russia, near the Kremlin, on major squares, where tens of thousands of people were coming out to protest against elections fraud. And Navalny was one of the figures who was leading these protests. This is the moment when Navalny really becomes a target for the Russian government. So from about 2012 or 2013, we start to see criminal cases opened against him for fraud, for a bunch of other different charges, often economic as well. It's clear that these cases are almost always politically motivated. And they keep him in courtrooms and almost in prison for most of the 2010s. And people quite often asked him, you know, how are you not in prison? How are you able to keep protesting against the government? And he would always say the same thing, which is that I have no idea why I haven't been put in prison yet, but I'm not going to change the way that I act and I'm going to keep doing what I do. How successful was he in doing that? I think one of the high watermarks, one of the big moments, was when Navalny actually ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013. There was a preferred Russian state candidate, that's Sergei Sabyanin, and Navalny launches this kind of guerrilla campaign as an opposition member. If he was in a normal system, he's a person who easily could have become the mayor of Moscow. 
and probably a person who could have become the president of Russia as well. He was very slick at creating a kind of grassroots political movement. I remember walking around Moscow at the time, and on a lot of corners, they would have volunteers. And you could have these kinds of grassroots discussions about what's wrong with Russia, what can we change, that are the building blocks of any real political movement. He also created a nationwide political infrastructure where he had Navalny supporters in every city, pretty much across the country. And I think that's part of what the Kremlin thought was so dangerous. And as well as this campaigning on the streets, he had a YouTube channel. It was clear to see from that his charisma and the relationship that he built with his followers, both inside and outside Russia. His style of communication set him in contrast to Putin, who rarely does interviews. Yes, Putin has often a populist message, but he doesn't really like people. You can tell it quite quickly just by watching the way that he kind of behaves. He's not a natural politician. Navalny really enjoys it, and you could see how much he enjoys everything from the video side of it to really talking to people on the street. How did it feel to actually sit across from him and speak to him? He had this kind of warmth, funniness. He loved popular culture. You know, Rick and Morty is one thing he liked to quote a lot. And if you put him in a political movement in Moscow, if you put him in a Moscow bar, you know, back when the opposition was meeting there in the 2010s, even if you put him in prison, he's a dominant figure and somebody who really dominates a room. This is a natural politician, a natural leader. So at the same time as he was building this grassroots movement, the government was pursuing legal cases against him. And then in 2017, he was attacked. At the time, he runs an organization that's called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. And they published these extremely interesting, aggressive investigations into corruption in the government. And so one day, Navalny is outside of the offices when someone comes up and throws disinfectant into his face. Some of it gets into his eyes. And he's more or less partially blinded for a significant period of time. I think he did believe the Kremlin was responsible for that attack. It is possible that it was linked to some of these very fringe extremist groups that support the Kremlin. But the attacks against him and the lack of a proper investigation into it kind of showed that anything was tacitly allowed, that anybody could do what they wanted to him. And, you know, he continued his work in Russia. But then in 2020, there was another attack on him, wasn't there? So in 2020, Navalny is in Siberia in the city of Tomsk, and he's supposed to be flying back to Moscow. And while he's sitting in the back of the plane, his body starts to tingle, and then he starts to feel this incredible pain, and he starts to scream. What had happened, as it comes out, is that somebody had gone into his room the day before and had poisoned him. They had used Navichok, which is the same poison that was used in the Salisbury attack in 2018. And it creates this incredible pain, and ultimately it leaves Alexei Navalny in a coma in Siberia, fighting for his life in hospital. But ultimately, his supporters and some people closer to government managed to lobby the Russian government to remove him from the hospital and transport him to the Charité Clinic in Berlin, which handles poisonings quite often. This is the moment that Alexei goes into political exile from Russia. And the documentary Navalny follows him and his wife, Yulia, and his children. 
while he was recuperating in Germany. And then you see him working with Bellingcat, the investigative reporting network, to try and track down who poisoned him on that plane and how they did it. What's really remarkable is that once he was physically able to, after about five months, he flew back to Russia, didn't he? Right. This was a big moment, I think, for a lot of people in Russia, for myself as well. It's clear that the Russian government doesn't want him to live. It's clear that they tried to kill him. He has managed to investigate his own poisoning and potential assassination, and they even managed to get members of the assassination squad to pick up the phone and to more or less admit that they were involved. Konstantin. Hello, Konstantin Borisovich. We know at this moment that he had a decision to make. He could remain in Germany and he could remain in political exile. But I think that he was worried that if he did that, then he would be abandoning the political movement that he had created. He didn't think he could be effective from outside the country. And the other option was to get on a plane and to fly back to Russia and to oppose Vladimir Putin. He decided to get on the plane that day in January and to come back to the country. To my mind, Navalny's act was a pure act of sacrifice. We knew what would happen to him. We knew he would be arrested and he would probably die in prison. And all the same, he decided to get on a flight and do that anyway, because he felt like that's what he had to do. Yulia, Navalny's wife, she was alongside her husband when he flew back into the country, sitting next to him on the plane, walking up with him to passport control. You could see police officers standing there ready to arrest him as he was coming into the country. And she was with him right until the end. And when they said, Alexei, you have to come with us now, he kind of gave her a kiss. And they held hands for a moment and then, you know, he was gone. What was he arrested for initially when he flew back to Russia? The reason he was arrested was a parole violation. He hadn't checked in with a parole officer because, as he said at the time, he was actually in a coma from the Novichok attack. And so when he arrived back in Russia, that was the pretext for why he was sent back to prison. And that was the way that they were able to put him away and out of the public eye. After this, we start to see a series of different criminal cases opened against him. The most serious one is for extremism and creating an extremist group. Navalny received 19 years in this special prison regime. And the idea of that was specifically to keep him from getting his message out. That special regime was in Siberia, one of the harshest environments in the world, where he'd live alongside some of the most dangerous prisoners in Russia. It became ever harder for Navalny to keep in touch with people outside. But his friends could write letters to him. And one of those who did was Yevgenia Albats. We were friends. We were friends and colleagues at arms in this fight against Putin's repressive regime. Yevgeny is a journalist and political scientist who first met Navalny in the early 2000s when he was just starting his political career. 
Two years ago, when she was facing charges for criticising the Russian military, it was Navalny who advised her to seek exile in the USA. And she lives there now and teaches at Harvard University. Yevgenia, how did you feel when you heard that Alexei had died? He didn't die. He was killed. And that's a principal difference. Even if they didn't kill him physically, they were killing him in jail. Out of this 1,100 days, Navalny spent 308 days in the solitary punishment cell. And solitary punishment cell in the Russian prison means no commissary, no access to the extra food, suffocating hot during the summertime and freezing cold during autumn and wintertime. It means 10 minutes per meal. He was supposed to eat his food in 10 minutes. And on top of that, Putin finally sent him to the maximum security prison in 61 kilometers of the Arctic Circle with temperatures below 30 degrees centigrade on a daily basis. People don't live there. So Putin was killing him day and night for 1,100 days. And finally, he succeeded. What was it like for you trying to get in contact with him? He didn't have, of course, any access to the internet. However, I typed my letter. And if it cleared the censorship, then it got Navalny. And I was sending him blank pieces of paper. And he was writing me back by pen and pencil. And for a while, when he was in the penal colony, we were able to correspond almost every two weeks. And what was the last thing you heard from him? How did he say? I never got any letters from him back from the Arctic Circle. So the last normal letter I got from him was in October. And you've known him for many years, haven't you? And you began as something of a mentor to him and then you've seen him rise up to be Putin's most prominent opposition. Did it always seem like he was on that path? Yes. He was smart, very talented. He was very good looking. But the most important thing about Alexei Navalny was that he was constantly, constantly indicating himself. The year that he was under house arrest, he learned English, so he was able to read complicated texts and educate himself in political science. He also was reading a lot of books written by the foreign politicians. He was this pure political animal, and from the jail, he wrote to me that he read biography of Churchill, Obama. Then he decided to study American conservative politicians like Karl Rove, George Bush. So that's how he was learning and educating himself to be an efficient politician. And of course, he was still 
coping with some of the after effects of the Novichok poisoning in 2020, he, of course, knew how dangerous it was to take on Putin. But after that poisoning, he came back to Russia. Why do you think he decided he had to do that? His line of argument was very simple. I'm a Russian politician and I have to be with my own people, you know. I cannot ask people to go and resist while sitting in the luxury of Great Britain or Germany or the United States. He saw himself as part of this resistance movement, but that resistance movement existed on the ground, not outside the borders. He said, if they kill me, it means that we're strong and you shouldn't give up. Don't give up. Over the weekend, there have been such huge turnouts for vigils for him and hundreds of people arrested at those vigils. What's it been like for you being in the US and seeing how loved he was by Russian people? In August 2022, Russian courts accused me of spreading disinformation about the Russian army because of my coverage of the war in Ukraine. And then they pronounced me a foreign agent working on behalf of Ukraine. So Navalny wrote to me, Zhenya, you have to leave the country. He insisted, and I thought that he was right. But if you ask me how I feel when he got killed in his prison and we failed to get him out, even though I tried a lot of ways. Uh, and when I saw all these police arrested people just because they came to mourn, to grieve, to put their flowers, I felt like these are real Russians. And I'm that coward who is sitting in Boston grieving. That's how I felt. But I also felt very proud about my fellow citizens that even though there is a very repressive regime in Russia, still people have had courage to go out and to openly grieve and mourn and remember Alexei Navalny, who was number one enemy to Russia's current dictator, Vladimir Putin. Coming up, What is Russia's opposition without Navalny? Hey, Jane Lee here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you probably know, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, which means we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, we don't answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we haven't put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers and listeners who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. So if you're able to support us, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. There's also a link on the full story page. Thanks. 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Andrew, since Navalny died on Friday, it's been impossible to get clarity on what actually caused his death. What are the Russian authorities saying at the moment? The penitentiary service says that he went for a walk on the day of his death, and that during the walk, he started to feel unwell, and that he then lost consciousness and never regained it. When the family was first told about his death, they were also told that Navalny had died of sudden death syndrome, which we think means something like cardiac arrest, but it doesn't really tell you why this person died. And it's been very hard to get clarity about what the actual cause of death was. So his mother has gone to Salahard, which is the largest town close to the prison. And for three days, she's been trying to receive her son's body. And for three days, they've been told that an investigation is ongoing. They're still doing tests. So we don't know if there are signs of a struggle, of bruising, of torture. We saw him on video a day before his death in court, basically joking with the judges in the room. He didn't seem like a person who was having a serious health crisis. How's it been reported in Russian media? On state media, you would get the information about Navalny's death maybe 40 minutes into the news presentation. And they would say, you know, in, in other news today, there was a person who died in this prison and it's not very important and, you know, quickly move on to kind of the next news segment. One thing that they did in particular is they tried to avoid using his name. This is something that Vladimir Putin does. He always called him, you know, my opponent, the man, if he ever referred to him. So it's very clear that even in death, they're really worried about his name becoming a kind of focal point. They really want him to be forgotten, I think, by the Russian public. This has happened in the shadow of the Russian elections that are due to take place in mid-March. I mean, this seems like an obvious question, but is there anyone presenting a legitimate challenge to Putin? I think the short answer right now is no, there's nobody who can challenge Putin in these elections because the elections themselves are set up to elect Putin. It is more of a coronation this time around. So, Andrew, let's talk about what happens now, potentially. Joe Biden the US president was very quick to come out in condemning Putin for Navalny's death. But make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. And leaders from across Europe have all been raising their concerns. But will they, can they actually do anything about it? 
Vladimir Putin didn't just kill Alexei Navalny. He launched a massive war in Ukraine, destroyed the city of Mariupol. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. In response, the West has already sanctioned Russia, and we're going to keep having waves of sanctions. Vladimir Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court for the abduction of children from Ukraine. And when you've already done all of that, the question is, what tools do you really have left? So we expect to see sanctions in particular about his death. They'll be focused on anybody who was involved in the court decisions, involved in the cover-up, involved in keeping his family from receiving the body, etc., etc. But we don't know if it's going to create some kind of major sanctions for Russia that they wouldn't expect anyway because of the war in Ukraine. Andrew, Navalny developed a whole following around him, a grassroots movement that presented a tangible challenge to Putin. Now that he's gone, can that movement, can that resistance be continued? I think that Navalny was an incredibly charismatic, important leader for that movement and that replacing him is going to be very difficult. He is irreplaceable. But at the same time, you do see a lot of messages from them saying that they seem to be extremely resolved and angry and decisive in their decision to go forward, pointing out corruption and trying to create a different Russia in the future. Just yesterday, we've also seen that Yulia, Navalny's wife, has also said that she would be going into politics in the opposition movement in continuing Alexei's fight against the Russian government. This is something that she had resisted for a very long time. And I think the fact that she said that she would now also be getting directly involved shows that it is possible that his death will bring forward new faces and convince some people that there really is you know, no other choice and that they have to take up the mantle because they've lost an incredibly important leader. What do you think his legacy will be? Just yesterday, I was reading his letters. In one of his letters, he wrote to me, death doesn't exist. I think that his words, I'm not afraid, and you shouldn't be afraid, that will become the slogan, the inspiration for the new Russian opposition. Don't give up, don't be afraid, resist. That was Yevgenia Albats, and before her, Andrew Roth, Moscow correspondent for The Guardian. Thank you to both of them. I'm Hannah Moore. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles, and sound design was by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Hummer Khalili. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.